0: Support comes from AstraZeneca, working side-by-side with leading scientists to better understand how complex data can be converted into innovative treatments. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about gastric cancers with Dr. Stacy Stein. Dr. Stein is an assistant professor of medicine in medical oncology at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Chagpar is an associate professor in the Department of Surgery and the assistant director for global oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center.
1: Dr. Stein, maybe
2: we can start off by talking about what exactly is gastric cancer? Right. So it's a cancer of the stomach. Um, and obviously, the stomach is attached to the esophagus. Um, so uh, some of the cancers start in d- their different parts of the stomach. Some of them start in the junction between the esophagus and the stomach.
1: And so how common is this? I mean, most people have heard of breast cancer and colon cancer and prostate cancer, but not a lot of us know a lot of
2: people who have stomach cancer. Right. So stomach cancer worldwide is a big deal about A million people are diagnosed worldwide every year. Um, It's much less common in the United States than worldwide, but we still see, for stomach cancer alone, about 28,000 cases in the last year.
1: And so why is that? I mean, I recently got back from Bhutan. And interestingly, in Bhutan, stomach cancer and gastroesophageal cancer is one of their top cancers. Do we know what causes cancer? What might be leading to this
2: worldwide variation in the in the incidence of this disease? So there there do seem to be some uh, different effects. And it's not all explained by the genetics of people from different backgrounds. Um, it is much more prevalent in Asia. There probably is some link between um, potentially food or storage of food. Um, in Japan, it's much higher. Um, I don't think we completely understand that. There's also association with H. pylori, which is um, a bacterial infection that we have treatment for, but not everyone uh, who has it knows that they have it. And even though H. pylori may be very prevalent, only about 1% of people with H. pylori infections wind up developing cancer from it.
1: That's a good point, because some people who have figured out that H. pylori is a causative kind of factor in, in gastroesophageal cancers have wondered about whether we should just randomly treat everybody. But if such a minority of, of H. pylori infection actually goes on to, to create cancer, that makes sense. How does, how does gastroesophageal cancer present
2: anyways? So it's interesting, the symptoms can be fairly nonspecific. So sometimes people just feel uncomfortable after they eat. They may feel what we call early satiety, meaning they feel full when they've only eaten a small amount. Sometimes they have some more bloating. They may have some heartburn symptoms. Um, As the cancer gets more advanced, they may have weight loss um, and more fatigue.
1: And does does reflux symptoms, kind of this
2: gastroesophageal reflux, does that end up turning into cancer? So most stomach cancers don't present with reflux, but some of the cancers at the very top of the stomach, near where it meets the esophagus, the cardia or what we call the gastroesophageal junction, Um, There is definitely a link between reflux, so the acid splashing back up out of the stomach into the beginning of the esophagus that can uh, lead to a lot of chronic inflammation, what we call Barrett's esophagus, and then can eventually lead to cancer. So...
1: I guess for people who may be getting reflux, because reflux is fairly common, uh, especially when people are a little bit overweight or they eat spicy foods or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of people who get heartburn. When should they be concerned? And what should doctors be doing to make sure that this is just heartburn versus this is the heartburn that's leading on its way to Barrett's esophagus and
2: cancer? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, the gastroenterologists see these patients usually, um, or the primary care physicians, and usually they'll try a trial of medications that may decrease the acid production. And if the symptoms then go away or are well-controlled, then the evaluation may stop there. But certainly for patients who have persistent symptoms, um, usually they wind up having an endoscopy, which basically means that uh, the gastroenterologist puts a probe down down uh, someone's mouth into the esophagus and gets to look around with a camera and see how the lining of the esophagus and stomach look. And so if
1: they see an abnormality, do they do a biopsy then? or?
2: Yes. So they would do a biopsy, and then our pathologist would let us know whether it looks just like a little bit of inflammation, whether an ulcer is forming, whether there's any cancer cells there. So let's suppose there's no cancer cells, but it's starting to
1: look like there's a little bit of inflammation, maybe this thing called Barrett's. At what interval should people be getting these endoscopies and biopsies? Is that the recommendation? And how often should they continue on these anti-acid medications? I mean, is that a lifelong thing to prevent cancer
2: if you have reflux? So that's a good question. In general, you know, we do want people to be on medication to control their reflux. And we would repeat the endoscopy. Usually, um, depending on the findings, it could be as soon as six months or it might be at a year. Um, and, not in every patient, but we often think of other lifestyle changes that patients could um, could work on to maybe decrease their risk. So it's not uncommon in the United States for gastroesophageal cancers, that cancer right at the junction between the esophagus and the stomach, when there's reflux to sometimes be associated with abdominal obesity. Mm. So we really then encourage people to try to exercise more frequently and have a weight loss plan. Is
1: gastroesophageal cancer associated with smoking and alcohol?
2: So there are some associations with with risk factors, with lifestyle risks risks factors. Um, when we think of so. Um, So the stomach um, and the lower part of the esophagus are similar types of cells lining it, but the top of the esophagus is a little bit different. So when patients develop cancers in the stomach or lower part of the esophagus, they're usually what we call an adenocarcinoma. The type of cancer that develops in the top part of the esophagus closer to the mouth are squamous uh, carcinomas which are more associated with alcohol and cigarette use but certainly tobacco use does in um does increase the risk of of all types of cancer.
1: Yeah. What about what about um kind of smoked meats? I mean people have been talking about nitrosamines. Does that
2: increase your risk of of stomach cancer? It does seem to increase the risk. Um, And while not every study looking at lifestyle risks um, we have separated out by every disease, it, it certainly seems for cancers of the GI tract that having a healthier diet does decrease risk. Um, We've certainly seen that from the colon cancer data, um, in most detail, um, eating more fruits and vegetables, um, less smoked meats, processed meats, meat in general, um, more fiber in the diet seems to decrease the risk, also having a healthy weight. All right.
1: We understand that we can try to prevent cancer as much as we can by maintaining a healthy body weight, avoiding um, tobacco, avoiding kind of highly smoked processed meats. But let's suppose you find yourself uh, having abdominal pain. Maybe you have some um, dark stool um, and you start to get worried. Tell me about the workup of gastric cancer and how that all
2: evolves so the symptoms for a lot of GI cancers are very similar to symptoms that could be non-cancer related so often you know people present to their primary care physician but if the pain is really acute they may uh, present to the emergency room you know often um The first part of the evaluation may include some modifications to see if the pain decreases. But then eventually, people usually have an endoscopy, like I described before, with a camera to look. And then also other imaging, like a CAT scan, to get a sense of what's going on in the the belly. Okay, So let's suppose you do that, and they look down, and they
1: see a, a, a lesion, an ulcer, whatever. And they biopsy it, and lo and behold, it comes back cancer. Is that how the diagnosis
2: is made, just on that biopsy? Right, so there's two parts to the diagnosis. One is to have a biopsy so that we actually have pathology showing cancer cells. And then the next important part is staging, meaning to figure out the extent of the cancer so then we can figure out what the best treatment option is. Now, I understand
1: that staging is different for different cancers. So some cancers like melanoma, it's really, you know, they look at not only uh, the lymph nodes and distant metastases, but they, they look at depth of invasion. Whereas in breast cancer, we look at the size of the tumor. In gastric cancers, how is that done? What's a good prognostic factor? What's a bad prognostic factor? How exactly do we stage these people?
2: Right. So um, So there's two parts to the staging. So so, Often when the biopsy is done, the patient may have had an endoscopy with a camera going down. But then we go back and we repeat the test again. But this time, we also use an ultrasound probe. So that's called an endoscopic ultrasound or EUS. And that allows the gastroenterologist to actually look through the wall of the stomach or esophagus and determine how far through the wall the cancer spreads. And that's important information to have. Then they can also see the lymph nodes in the area, and they could even potentially biopsy a lymph node through the wall using the ultrasound as guidance. Mm.
1: So right through the stomach, they can biopsy a lymph node that might be hanging out near the stomach? Correct. And so, given all of that information, there must be kind of early-stage gastric cancers and late-stage gastric cancers. How are these managed differently? Right.
2: So, so we look through the how far through the wall it goes. And then also, we use the CAT scan to see if there's any spread of disease or metastases. So, um, so the treatment is really different depending on the stage. If it is a very, very early stage, meaning that it's just at the most superficial part of the lining of the stomach or, or esophagus, sometimes the gastroenterologist can do the treatment themselves, where they do a very local ablation hmm. um, or endomucosal resection, it's called EMR. Um, And that's just for very superficial lesions. But for lesions that go thicker through the wall of the stomach or include lymph nodes, then we really have to think about surgery as a potential um, curative option, and sometimes that's with chemotherapy or chemotherapy and radiation. For patients who have more distant spread of disease, meaning that we can't remove it all with a simple surgery to one area, then we really focus on chemotherapy. And so
1: let's talk about the medium, the early stage but it can't just be a mucosal resection. So you you know we talk often in many cancers on this show about surgery and chemotherapy and radiation therapy and how these all work together and our perception is that sometimes chemotherapy goes first and sometimes surgery goes first. How does it work in gastric cancer?
2: Right, so, so we do like to do some therapy for most cancers unless they're the very superficial kind. And there are some even that are a little bit more than just superficial that we do surgery um, and maybe not think about chemotherapy. But for the majority, we think about doing another treatment. And the reason for that is that we know if we do surgery alone, the recurrence risk is high. So the assumption is that there must be some cells that were left behind, and we really want to eradicate those cells around the time of the surgery to give patients the best chance at a cure. So um, the treatment is a little bit different for esophageal cancer versus gastric, um, but the treatment for gastric cancer is usually chemotherapy before and after the surgery, and then with esophageal cancer, we're usually also including radiation before the surgery.
1: Great. Well, we're going to learn a lot more about all of these treatment options and how really the field is moving forward, as we hope it is, right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about gastric cancers with my guest, Dr. Stacy Stein.
0: Support comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a Medical Minute about head and neck cancers. Although the percentage of oral and head and neck cancer patients in the United States is only about 5% of all diagnosed cancers, there are challenging side effects associated with these types of cancer and their treatment. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers, And in many cases, less radical surgeries are able to preserve nerves, arteries, and muscles in the neck, enabling patients to move, speak, breathe, and eat normally after surgery. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio.
1: We're here talking about treatment advances for gastric cancer. So right before the break, Stacey, we were talking about gastric cancers. These are the ones that are primarily in the stomach. And we talked about the fact that the majority of these gastric cancers are the ones that aren't super superficial. So they're not the ones that can be locally ablated by a uh, gastroenterologist, but really require multimodality therapy, Um, surgery plus chemotherapy often. And you mentioned that in the case of gastric cancers, chemotherapy is often sandwiched. You'll start with chemotherapy, you'll then do surgery, and then you'll finish with more chemotherapy. Why is that? In many other cancers, like breast cancer for example, we try to put all the chemotherapy up front or all the chemotherapy out back. Is there an
2: advantage for the sandwich technique in gastric cancers? I you know that's a good question. I think some of it is historical on how the first clinical trials were evolved, and then it showed a benefit, and that's become the paradigm for this type of cancer. But you're right. In many cancers, we are moving a lot of the therapy to the front. And for esophageal cancer, we give all the chemotherapy and radiation up front. Um, There really hasn't been a a recent um, trial that looked at doing all of the therapy up front versus sandwiching it this way. Um, But this is- The way we do it. Historically been kind of the paradigm for for this type of treatment. Okay, I was just
1: curious. What about radiation? You mentioned in esophageal cancer there's chemotherapy and radiation given up front before surgery. What how does radiation fit into gastric cancers?
2: Right. So so there there have been studies looking at the role of of radiation in gastric cancer also where all the treatment is given up front and then there's also been this perioperative approach where uh, the chemotherapy is uh, before and after the surgery. Um, and you can give either treatment. Usually, we focus more on radiation for cancers that are close to the junction between the st- the stomach and the esophagus.
1: Is that just because it moves less so that there's less toxicity because the stomach is more floppy than the GE junction? Or is it because just radiation isn't as effective in gastric cancer as it is in esophageal cancer? It seems to be more effective in in esophageal. the esophageal part. So... In terms of surgery for gastric cancer, does that mean that people's whole stomach needs to be removed?
2: Not necessarily. Um, It really depends on the location of the tumor and extent and the lymph node involvement. Um, So, uh, Often patients can have what's called a partial gastrectomy where only some of the stomach is removed um, as opposed to the whole stomach removed. And as much as possible, we try to limit the amount of resection because we want patients to be able to recuperate well and be able to eat uh, after you know, after the surgery. I would
1: imagine that a lot of patients lose a lot of weight with that surgery. It sounds almost like some of the
2: surgeries that we hear about for weight loss surgery, is that true? So it is hard to maintain weight after a surgery like this. Um, patients often have to adjust to what I what I call a new normal. Um, so after big surgeries to the GI tract, um, Often patients have to eat smaller meals more frequently. Sometimes they need a lot of nutritional support right after surgery. Sometimes at the time of surgery, a feeding tube gets placed below the level of the surgery so that they can have nutrition supplements as they're kind of learning to re-eat. Um... It's very important to have a good kind of muscle store and protein store before going into a surgery. And sometimes because of the tumor and location, people are having a hard time eating. So. We always include a nutritionist in our planning and we really try to educate the patient about how many calories they should be eating and really maintaining their nutrition.
1: Yeah. Cuz I would think that, you know, the stomach is involved in, you know, absorption and vitamins and all kinds of other
2: things that you need to think about too. Right. So um, we do have to think about the absorption. Certainly one vitamin in particular is vitamin B12 that gets absorbed there and not in other parts of the GI tract. So it's not uncommon um, for patients to need a supplement, often in a shot form Mm. uh, for some time after their surgery.
1: Cool. So let's talk more about chemotherapy, which I know is your expertise. Tell me more about chemotherapy. I mean, I think in so many cancers, the way I think of it is that there are some chemotherapies that are just kind of like the machine gun. And it goes and it kills all the rapidly dividing cells. But more and more, now we're beginning to find the shotgun who can kind of target exactly where the cancer cells are and kill off those, really trying to spare other
2: tissues and other cells uh, damage. How are things going in gastric cancer? So it's been exciting. We've had a couple of advances that are very encouraging. Um, So traditionally, we've used the standard chemotherapy drugs, as you would say, the big guns, and while they've had some benefit. They haven't been very effective, right? We're not curing everyone that we treat with early cancer. And even patients, especially the patients with metastatic disease, we know those treatments only last for a certain amount of time. And then the cancer starts to grow in spite of those medications. There have been um, a few important um, drug targets that we found in gastric cancer. So one is Uh, We found that about 20% of our patients with gastroesophageal cancer have what's called a HER2 amplification. So we already knew about this from breast cancer years before, and then it was found later that this is actually relevant to this disease also. So we basically recopied some of the breast cancer studies and were able to show that there was a benefit of giving the antibody trastuzumab to patients with metastatic disease. We also did a study where patients got chemotherapy and radiation before their surgery And half the patients got trastuzumab and half didn't. And that study finished a while ago. We participated in that study. And I think this year we're going to finally see the results of that study.
1: Yeah, fingers crossed. This is always so exciting when patients and clinicians participate in clinical trials that potentially can move the field forward. And it's always the hardest part, I find, to wait for the results to come out. Yeah.
2: Well, the study took a while to wait because patients went through surgery and then they've Mm. been followed for a while. So um, I'm eager to get the results. What else is on the horizon in, in gastric right. cancer? So, so very exciting. We finally have immune therapy options available for our patients. Um, so this past year, uh, the results of a study with pembrolizumab, one of the pdl one drugs. So this is an antibody that targets... Um, a receptor on the on cells, it helps stimulate our white blood cells, so our own immune cells to attack the cancer and recognize it as foreign. Actually, this was presented by our Cancer Center Director, Dr. Fuchs, at our big national meeting. Mm. And basically, we saw that um, this study looked at patients who had uh, metastatic disease, they had gotten at least a few different types of chemotherapy, and then went on this study to see the benefit um, of the drug. And it seems that um, the responses were higher in people whose tumor tested positive for PDL1, um, and there was uh, close to about a 16 to 18 percent response rate in those patients. And then the FDA in September approved the drug pembrolizumab for these patients who had already gotten some chemotherapy and tested positive for pdl one
1: So that's really exciting. And I think, as in so many clinical trials, things kind of start in the metastatic setting, where so now you know that trastuzumab might be really effective for HER2-positive gastric cancer, and pembrolizumab might be really effective for people who have been pretreated who have a PD-L1 uh, receptor. So, but what about... Are any of those therapies being considered,
2: kind of upfront before the disease has spread all over your body? Right. So, so the trials are moving up, looking at patients who are getting diagnosed at first. Um, also, we're looking at every patient to test them for what's called microsatellite instability. So we know that those patients have a lot more mutations in their tumors and seem to respond much better to immune therapy. Mm-hmm. So we're always looking for those patients, and. You know, most excitingly, we're really trying to figure out why do only some of our patients respond to immune therapy, and how do we get the other patients to respond to immune therapy? So there's a next wave of trials that are what we call platform studies. So they're able to move in different combinations of treatment as they kind of come through drug development. So we're looking at combinations of immune therapy plus other drugs that may modulate the immune system to try to see, can we get more more responses from patients who may not have responded to just the pembrolizumab alone.
1: So is this just for the PDL1 patients or is it for other patients who might have also responded to immunotherapy if they had pick whatever if they're MSI or if they have some other drug on board or whatever. Right. So
2: so we don't know for the pembrolizumab study actually 6% of the PDL1 negative patients still had a response. Mm. So I think there is hope, right, that we'll be able to find alternative treatments that we can get more patients to respond including the PDL1 negative patients. Cool.
1: So what is the overall prognosis of these patients with gastric cancer? I mean,
2: is this a really bad disease? Do people die? So unfortunately, unfortunately, we can't cure everyone with this disease. And as the stage increases of the tumor, then the survival decreases. Um, so one of the numbers we often think about in cancer is what we call f- Five-year survival, meaning from the time of someone's diagnosis, how are patients doing five years
0: forward? Yeah,
2: um, and we know for the patients with much more locally local disease. About two-thirds of patients are alive at five years. That's not bad. Right. They may may or may not still be getting treatment. When the disease becomes more regional with lymph nodes that are involved, that number decreases to more like a third of patients are still alive at five years. Unfortunately, when patients have metastatic disease, even though we're trying to expand the number of treatments, um, unfortunately, that number becomes all the way down to about 5%. So there's a lot of room for improvement, and everyone in this field is really excited about getting more clinical trials, more good treatment options into the clinic so that we could really improve those numbers.
1: So one of the things you mentioned was, um, especially with regards to uh, pembrolizumab, was it was approved for people in that study who had been treated with multiple lines of therapy. So one of the questions I always have is, you get a treatment. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't work so well. How many of these lines of treatment do you go through? I mean, how how, how, and when do you decide that you're going to try something
2: different? And how do you decide what the different thing is? Right. So that's why, you know, once we see some benefit in in a trial, we really try to move those treatment options earlier into the treatment algorithm so that patients can get a benefit up front. I think the question will be for patients who are newly diagnosed with metastatic disease, um, do we want to give them immune therapy alone up front or do we want to give a combination of chemotherapy you know, an immune therapy. Right now, we do have more than one line of treatment available to patients. We have different chemotherapy drugs. We also have a drug called Ramucirumab, which is an antibody that targets blood vessel formation in tumors, and that's been shown to be um, somewhat effective by itself or in combination with chemotherapy. So while we do have different lines of therapy, um... It's not an exhaustive list. Um, And certainly, if there's something that's showing potential good effect with with less side effects, um, we really want to try to move that up um, toward the initial therapy. So how do
1: you decide, I mean,
2: if you're sitting there and you've got metastatic gastric
1: cancer and you've just told us that five-year survival rate is single digits. You want to hit that with everything you can to try to improve that that survival rate number. You want to be in that 5%. So is it better to kind of take everything up front, or is it better to go one by one?
2: So... Most of the chemotherapy regimens are two-drug regimens. Sometimes before surgery, we use three-drug regimens, but they're more difficult to tolerate. So usually we would start with a two-drug regimen. We get scans frequently so we can keep reassessing how someone's doing. And then, you know, as we get results, we try to go to the next best option.
0: Dr. Stacy Stein is an assistant professor of medicine and medical oncology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer right here on WNPR.